Let me pray and ask God's blessing on his word preached. Lord Jesus, you're the great king who shows mercy and kindness unto the weakest ones. You're the great prophet who teaches the people of God, the ways of God. You're the great priest who stands and makes intercession for us after having offered yourself on the cross for our sins as the perfect sacrifice. And so now this is our hope, our prayer this morning. Come and be with us by your word and spirit. May your voice echo in our ears. Comfort us where we need to be comforted. Drive us out of ourselves where we are trusting too much in our own works. We pray all these things, our Savior, in your name. Amen. Well, uh, if you're uh, joining with us today, if you're visiting, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus. And if you're a regular tender, we're going to finish up our study on the book of Exodus uh, today. Right? And, and we've said this all along, that really the narrative of Exodus, really, you've got to understand it in the broader context of the whole of the story of Scripture, where the, the Bible is going. And in that narrative, that story goes like this, right? That the world is broken and God is redeeming it, right? We've seen this this week and, and the mess that is um, both immigration and immigration policy in our country. It's a broken world. Nothing seems to work the right way. Um, whatever the fix should be, it's obvious that there needs to be a fix, but we're broken too, right? We're, we're not the way we should be. Whether it's, it's disease or cancer in our bodies or our marriages not working the way they should be or our children not turning out the way we would like for them to be. We are a broken people who live in a broken world. None of us are who we need to be. And so the book of Exodus falls into this theme. God is redeeming what's broken. That the work of fixing a broken world and a broken people is by his strong arm alone. He's the only hope. But he's doing this work of redemption, of fixing a broken world in a very particular way that we see in the book of Exodus. He's promised that he will rework creation so that creation itself will no longer be as broken as it is, but begins with a people. This is the pattern of his redemption, to, to make a people for himself. Then one day, a new world, right? First a people, a new people out of an old people, a people out of slavery to life, a people um, who were once destitute, thriving under his care. And then one day in the future, a new world where he'll put everything back together. And we saw this pattern in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a little, a little garden of Eden reestablished. God putting the world back together in the midst of his people. And he redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt for a very particular purpose. They were to be a kingdom of priests. His redeemed people were to be a blessing to the world. They inherited all of the promises made to Abraham. The end result was that God would be amongst his people. And as a result, they would be a blessing 
to the nations, a redeemed people where God would dwell, blessing the world that they lived in. But there's a problem that we see two weeks ago when Chad preached on Exodus 32. The pinnacle is God dwelling new creation power in the midst of his people. And Moses has gone up on Mount Sinai to receive the blueprint for the house that God would build that would be right in the center of his people. And while Moses is receiving the plans, God's people have abandoned him almost immediately and gone off crafting gods of their own that they can attribute all of the good things that the Lord has done. It's like, it's like a bridegroom going off to build himself a, a home for his bride-to-be and, and working and laboring for her so that she would have a place where she would be protected and provided for and nourished under his love. And, and while he's going off building the house, she runs off with another man. And so the big question, the big question of chapters 33 and 34 is this. What is going to happen to this adulterous people who've broken God's covenant? What, what's going to happen to God's plan of redemption now that the people have immediately given first chance, broken God's covenant law? But the big question really is a question that we face almost on a daily, or not almost, on a daily basis. And it's this, how is God going to deal with us in our adultery against him, we're breaking his covenant regularly, daily, if not often. If you're anything like me, the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed, I'm faced with this question, God, I've broken your law. I've gone after other loves. What will you do with me? And so here's where we're going today in, in Exodus 33, mostly in, we're going to bring in 34 and then the very end of the book in chapter 40. But Here's the question, three things, really, yeah, three things. If we get to the third one, uh, we'll be lucky, but at least two. What is the effect of sin, right? When we break God's law, what is the effect? What happens? Secondly, what do we need when we sin? And then thirdly, if we get there, what's after sin? This is a this whole chapter, 33 and 34, is the renewal of the covenant. Israel had broken the covenant. Moses had received the Ten Commandments, called the Ten Words, scribed in by God's own hand into two tablets. He comes down the mountain, sees them in an adultery, throws the law at them. It breaks at their feet because they had broken God's covenant. And so Moses intercedes for them. Many die as a result of God's wrath on them. And then verse 1 of chapter 33. This is a what's called in verse 4 a disastrous word. This is what God says. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, and the people you've brought up out of the land of Egypt, the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land filled with milk and honey, but I won't go with you. That's the curse. He withdraws his presence from them. Gives them a warning. This is because you're a stiff-necked people in my holiness. 
If I go with you, people of sin, I will consume you. So go ahead. Go to the promised land. I'll defeat your enemies there. I'll give you this land. It's a beautiful land flowing with milk and honey, except I won't be with you. I mentioned in chapters 32 through 34 that this is really a a pivotal chapter and and breaks up the story of the tabernacle, which was the, the highlight of the Exodus narrative. If you've, if you've seen you know, the movies, it really the, you'd think that the highlight of the Exodus is Israel out of Egypt. That the, right, the book of Exodus is written, the highlight is not Israel out of Egypt, it is God with Israel. And so this curse is particularly problematic. If this was the pinnacle, the greatest blessing is that God would be with his people. That was the thing that made them a distinct people. A thing that made them unlike anybody else on the face of the earth. The Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, who holds the stars in his hand, who governs the rise and fall of nation, is dwelling with his people. Where he dwells, new creation happens. He puts broken things back together. So the Lord in their midst meant he was going to provide for them. They received manna in the wilderness and water coming out of rocks. Why? Because God was with them. He fought their battles and enemies were put down. Why? Because God was with them. And so this curse is particularly unsettling. You've broken my covenant. You've sinned. I'll give you my blessings, but I won't go with you. He removes himself from them. You see, God is clear in this whole narrative. In fact, he says it in chapter 34, I will by no means overlook sin. It must be dealt with. God, while generous and slow to anger, will by no means just turn a blind eye to sin and sin drives his presence from his people. He warns them, I am so holy that when your sin comes into my presence, one of us will not remain. My holiness will consume you. In fact, starting in verse 7, God actually physically removes himself and goes off to a distance where Moses sets now the tent of meeting, the place where he's meeting with God off into the outside of the camp. Such a stark contrast. What was supposed to happen, the reason he was on the, tab, on the Mount Sinai receiving the blueprints for the tabernacle was because God was going to dwell in the midst of his people. Now he has physically removed himself to the outside of the camp because of their sin. You may not be a follower of Jesus today. We're glad that you're here. But you need to know this. Your sin must be dealt with if you are going to be in the protecting, providing presence of God. If his redeeming presence is going to come into your life, you must have the problem of sin dealt with. Now hold on for a second because we're going to deal with that. You are now outside of Christ removed from his presence. We'll see in a moment what God does to fix that problem. It is amazing, but just for now, hold on to that tension, if you will. 
And if you're a follower of Jesus, let me say this. There are times when God feels distant because he's removed himself from your life. He removed his presence, sorry, let me just rephrase that. He's moved his, his countenance is the word that the scriptures often use, his, his blessed presence from your life. We feel like our prayers are dry. They don't go any further than the ceiling. It's like his face is turned from me. Or just don't longer want to pray. I just don't care anymore. My heart is shriveling up in me. Worship seems dull and disinterested. We find sin growing in our lives. We just don't care anymore about it. All of which leads to the worst curse a joyless life, no joy in the Christian life because God is distant. And when that happens, we need to ask the hard question, is there, is there unrepentant sin in my life? It may just be that God's taking you through a season of dryness. He often does this, right? Sometimes he just takes his people through a season of dryness, of spiritual lethargy, of spiritual wandering. Why? Because, well, I often say that in the desert, water is most delightful. Sometimes he just takes us through desert times in the Christian life just so that his presence will be even sweeter when his face turns against us, uh, on us sometime. And there are times when you might go through depression just because your body is malfunctioning. Don't be afraid to get help. What we are talking about, though, are the times when you're going through spiritual dryness and you fail to ask, God, is this because? Have you turned your face away from me because there is unrepentant sin in my life? He is slow to anger. It's not petty. It's not little sin and then harsh consequences. Patterns of sin could at times lead him to turn his countenance from us. You see, this was, the, this was the great travesty of the cross. This is the way back in, by the way. This is our transition. This is the pattern of the cross. The great travesty of the cross was that God removed his life-giving, soul-satisfying, joy-producing presence from Jesus. As the Son bore our sins, God turned his face away. And the writers of the Gospels tells us, Matthew particularly says, it was with agony that Jesus experienced this. It so caused his soul to weep in agony that he cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is, because you are bearing the sins on your back of my people. I turned your face away, my face away. The soul dies when God removes his redeeming, providing, protecting presence from his beloved people. Now, here's the way back. If you find yourself in that place, here's the good news. This is where God always, he like always ushers in. Here's the harsh news. This is what sin requires. Here's the good news. Here's what I've done about it. He provides the way back and leads Israel back into 
his presence. This narrative ends, this is good news, with God renewing the covenant and being in the presence of his people. Again, most of chapter 34 is God renewing the covenant with his people from verse 10 onward. He doesn't leave them because of their spiritual adultery. He confronts it, deals with it, and then leads them back into his presence. In fact, at the end, in chapter 40, we read this amazing thing. The people construct the tabernacle, and then at the very end, this is how it ends. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. He was there in the presence of his people again. So how do we get back there? How does this kind of renewal take place? Well, the pathway back into God's countenance, his joy-giving, redeeming, soul-satisfying, providing, protecting presence, the pathway back is through two things. One is outside of you. One is inside of you. First, what is inside of you? What needs to happen? So the pathway back is through repentance, costly repentance, and then mediatorial pleading. You need both. You need to turn costly away from sin and go and have someone pleading your case. We need true repentance. True repentance always feels costly. Now, repentance is a big word. Children, it just simply means turning away from. Turning away from patterns of sin turning to God, the Redeemer, as our only hope, and then walking in new obedience. But that's not easy. It always feels like death when we walk this path. And so let's look down at verse 6 of 33. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. Right? The threat of God removing himself was dreadful. Even though they had received word, we'll get your blessings, but we won't have you. They received this as dreadful. They would rather have God in the promised land. It saddened them so that's who they mourned. A true repentance is always wet. Comes with tears. Not just that I've broken God's law, but I've broken his heart. I've committed adultery against him. Thirdly, they took off their ornaments. They had gathered riches from Egypt, but the ornaments, you'll remember from 32, from chapter 32, are the things that they used to craft the false gods to worship the one true living God. They were stumbling blocks for them, and so they took them off. And we read in verse 6 that from that time onward, they never put the ornaments back on. Things that had once been precious to them because it had led to sin. Cast it off. I don't want anything else to do with this anymore. It was costly and wet and led to new obedience. And see, that's what needs to happen in us. It needs to happen inside of us. There needs to be a grief. I've offended God. He's removed his presence and that saddens me. But the third thing that needs to happen, the second thing needs to happen, and this is is remarkably beautiful. It's the end, whole rest of chapter 
33. It's remarkably beautiful. The second thing that you need is not just grief over sin. You need a mediator who's pleading your case. God always, we said throughout the book of Exodus, God always deals with his people through a mediator. Children, we've said a mediator is just someone who stands between two parties, right? So when you send your older brother or your younger brother because, you know, like he's the favorite one and you want something from mom and dad, you send him to ask because he's more likely to get a yes. He's acting as a mediator, going between two parties to procure, to get blessings, Moses, and this is what's happening, he's grown into his stature as mediator, as this unique, his unique position in the people of God who stands before God. And this is what he does. He represents the people. And so he enters into the tent of meeting in verse 7, and he begins to plead with God on behalf of Israel. Now look, starting in verse 7, what Moses pleads. Verse 12 He pleads the covenant. He pleads God's promises. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me me know whom you'll send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Verse 13, consider that this nation is your people. And then verse 16, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people, it is not you're going with us that make us distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. He's just suing God for his word. God, you've made these promises. You have got to keep these promises. You made them out of your love for this people. Now, keep these promises. The second thing that he pleads is Moses' own merit. Moses pleads his own favor before God in verse 13. I have found favor in your sight. If I have found favor as the mediator, he's spending his own commodity. I have favor. Now let that favor go rest on these people. I have assets. Now let those assets go. He's willing to spend all that he has so that his covenant people who he's representing can have access back to God's redeeming, restoring, life-giving, joy-filling presence. Now you have a glimpse, you have a glimpse into what the Lord Jesus is doing now before the throne of grace. And Moses acting as mediator is pointing us forward to what God would eventually do through the person of his own son. And so a writer of Hebrews loops us into what's going on. First Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 if you're taking notes. This is good news. When we sin, it is not the end because we have one who is mediating. He's pleading our case before the throne of God. Consequently, Hebrews seven twenty nine, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for us. Do you get that? And Jesus has died. He's been raised in victory, and he's seated in heaven, and he's not up there twiddling his thumbs or passing his time playing Fortnite. He's pleading your case. He lives. Why does he live? He lives to make intercession. As a result, Romans chapter 8, verse 34, who is to condemn? 
Who can condemn God's people, Paul asks. The answer is assumed, no one. Why? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. And because he pleads, back to Hebrews chapter 7, 25. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. To the uttermost. To the complete and absolute end. You sin. I sin. God's favor is restored to us. Because the Son pleads, all of my merit is theirs. Do not count their sin against them anymore because I died. My blood covers them. They're clothed in my righteousness. And the Father's heart leaps for joy. This is the covenant that I made with you. The agreement that we had. I will bestow on them my favor. And as a result, they will make it all the way to the end. Because I am going to save them to the uttermost. New heavens, new earth. My little children, John writes, I'm writing these things, this whole book, I'm writing these things to you that you, that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now look Lastly, at God's response to Moses' mediatorial pleading. He's pleading with God. And as a result, God reestablishes his favor and his presence. First, his favor, verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you've spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And then he restores his presence back. See, Moses asks in verse 18 for this most remarkable thing, please show me your glory. I want to see you. I want to experience you in a way that brings joy and soul satisfaction to my heart. Show me your glory. To understand what Moses is acting, you got to skip down to verse 19 because this is the way he restates it. I will, and God restates his request. This is what I'll do. I'll make all of my goodness pass before you and proclaim my name. Now, he restores his favor, restores his presence, and as a result, two remarkable things happen. First, now we're having to skip over in verse 28 of chapter 34. The first is, this is what, to have God's presence in our lives really is soul satisfying. It is so deeply satisfying that Moses is on the mountain with God. He was there for the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. For 40 days, the Lord's presence was so satisfying to his heart and his body that he needs nothing to drink. I can't go six hours. I get done with breakfast and I'm thinking about lunch. 40 days. The second thing, now we're skipping back to verse 20. 
of chapter 33. The second thing of being in God's presence is radical transformation happens so that we become like God. So Moses asks this question, how can I, you know, I want to see your glory. God warns him, you can't see my face. So I'm going to put you in this rock, this cleft of the rock that's near you. I'm going to put my hand over you. I'm going to pass by and you're going to see that I'll remove my hand. You'll get to see my backside. You can't see my face. If you see my glory, you'll be consumed, but you'll be able to see my backside. And then Moses sees this. He experiences God's glory, his goodness passing in front of him. And what happens? Moses becomes like God and receives his glory. Verse 29 of chapter 34. This is a familiar story to many of you. When Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, right? The covenant's been renewed. He's received that. He came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near to him. But Moses called them and Aaron and the leaders and the congregation returned and Moses talked with them and afterwards all the people came near and he commanded them all the Lord had spoken. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the people of Israel all that he had commanded and the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining And Moses then put a veil over his face again until he went in to speak with them later. Do you see what's going on in both of these instances? God's glory passes on, on to the people. I mean, Moses is no great leader, by the way. You'll remember how reluctant he was and ends his life not in the promised land because he sinned. God's glory is passed on to sinful, undeserving people. When covered with Christ, you can enter boldly before the throne of grace, and this is what happens. Paul borrows this to talk about what's going on in the Christian life when you look on Jesus through his word. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we with all unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, it's like when you behold the Lord Jesus in the gospel. God does something remarkable in our lives. He deals with sin. He doesn't just give us bold access. He says, come into my presence, I'll change you. Look on Jesus through his word and what will happen is, is you don't drag him down. He bestows his glory on you and you become like him so that you are transformed from one degree of glory to another. God announces to us his greatness through the gospel and you become like Jesus. You can't spend no time in his word and expect to come like, you've got to 
Behold the face of Jesus. Meditate, memorize, dwell here. For as God announces to you his glory in his word, you are changed from one degree of glory to another. And as a result, makes you the kind of person who is a blessing to the world around you. So if you find yourself struggling with sin, look on Jesus. He pleads for you. And if you find yourself wanting to be delivered from sin, look on Jesus, for he'll change you into his glory. Let's pray. Father, this is our only hope that we belong to Christ, crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again. May we never leave your presence unchanged. May we never grow dull to wanting, to needing to have you near. For we pray all these things in the name of the one who mediates and pleads for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.